Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Sinead O'Carroll, and this week, what will the COP27 Climate Summit focus on? It kind of feels just like yesterday that we were all sitting here discussing what big promises world leaders would make at COP26 in the UK, led by Prime Minister Boris Johnson. But enough time has obviously passed. Johnson is no longer PM and his successor, Rishi Sunak, created drama by saying he wasn't even going to attend COP this year. But as is the way in British politics at the moment, a U-turn ensued and he will be on a plane to Egypt this weekend. So what's he going to be met with there? What are we expecting out of COP27 as the world continues to hurtle towards climate catastrophe? And what is Ireland's place in all of this? Here at The Journal, we've had a dedicated climate team for over a year and author of our temperature check newsletter, Lauren Boland, joins me today on The Explainer. Forgive my cold, um, you're not in the same room as me, but you will be able to hear it as we go through this, so apologies for that. Uh, you are heading to Sharm El Sheikh too on Saturday, and like I mentioned, it feels like no time at all since the last one. Are these conferences getting more frequent or are they just getting more attention? Well, we did miss one in 2020 because of COVID, but normally they are, they are annual. They're usually around this time of year. I think they are getting more attention, though. I think people are more and more realizing that climate and, and the policy decisions that we're making around it, it's, it's not something we can keep ignoring. Um, but saying that there is an element of them that has become more frequent, I think that might be part of the reason why these last few have gotten more attention. So previously countries were being asked to make significant new commitments on emissions every five years. So if you remember COP21 in Paris back in 2015, that was one of the big years where there was this kind of big new agreement made. Then you got a gap between that and Glasgow last year where there were COPs happening, but you didn't have the same level of these kind of big international agreements coming out of them to the same level that there was with Paris because that wasn't what was being asked of them. But something that's changed since last year is that countries are now going to be asked to up the ante on what they're bringing to the table every year. So I think even though the COPs themselves aren't getting more frequent, there is that kind of more frequency to, I guess, the urgency of what they're being asked to do. Lauren, one of the things we heard about last year was how expensive it was in Scotland and how difficult it was for attendees to actually just even be at COP26. What are the conditions expected uh, to be like in Sharm el-Sheikh this year? Yeah, so there's no charge to actually attend the conference as part of a delegation or as an observer, but the expense comes from things like accommodation, from your flights, from your food, all those things that um, are expensive in any case. But then when you have people coming from across the world to a relatively small area, they become that much more expensive than under normal circumstances. So that was raised as a problem last year in Scotland when People also on top of that had to deal with the added pressure that COVID put on ability to travel. And then again, we're seeing that this year, particularly in relation to the accommodation, which has become very expensive in Sharm el-Sheikh, which is this resort town um, on the coast of the Red Sea, where a lot of the accommodation is, is already um, tailored to, I suppose, a certain type of traveler. Um, and that has become quite expensive now for the date that COP is happening, um, you know, to, to a prohibitive extent for some people who would otherwise have attended, but actually the cost of accommodation has been a barrier to getting to Egypt. Let's just stay in Scotland for a second, Lauren. And what was the outcome of COP26? We got the Glasgow Climate Pact. So that's a deal building on the 2015 Paris Agreement, which is the one people probably know as 
the agreement that said the world should try to stop temperatures rising by any more than 1.5 degrees Celsius and definitely no more than two degrees at a maximum. So then countries came back in Glasgow to revisit that, to look at how they could implement the measures that are going to get to those Paris Agreement uh, thresholds. But it did fall quite short of expectations. So particularly in relation to things like cutting out our our use of fossil fuels and giving support to developing countries who are the worst affected by the climate crisis. If you do the maths around the plans that came out of Glasgow, it would put the world on track for about 2.7 degrees of warming this century, which is a very dangerous amount of warming that we know will come with with quite devastating consequences for human life. So as it stands, uh, the Glasgow deal, it didn't go far enough. What you've just said there probably answers my next question, which is, will the same issues top the agenda this time around? Yeah, there's going to be a lot of pressure on leaders, on negotiators to make progress on those issues, particularly those those questions around cutting down fossil fuels and getting those supports in place for countries that are already suffering with the climate crisis. That's something that's known as loss and damage. That's going to be something that at least it needs to be on the agenda. And if it is slipping from attention, it's going to be something that NGOs and experts and activists are going to be really putting the pressure on countries to deliver on those there are other issues as well that will come to attention. So across the two weeks, you have themed days where particular issues are given attention. So some of the ones that are coming up this year are things like energy, agriculture, uh, water and biodiversity. Also more I guess, social aspects of climate action around things like youth and, and future generations and gender equality and, and how those kind of intersect with climate issues. So it's it's a varied agenda across the board. I think those key issues will be the ones that were kind of left slide last year around fossil fuels and loss and damage. Speaking of loss and damage, in that context, is Egypt's hosting of the meeting important? Will it give other African countries the chance to lay bare just how vulnerable they are to climate change? Out of out of all the COPs we've seen so far, this is only the fifth one to be held on the continent of Africa. There were there were two previously in Morocco, one in South Africa and one in Kenya. And we know that many of the countries that are most vulnerable to climate change are in Africa. Some of them are already experiencing extreme weather events like droughts and floods that are damaging for kind of human livelihoods and also lives themselves. But Sharm el-Sheikh, is not a location that is representative of the kind of devastation that's being experienced in other places on the continent. And even though it's closer in proximity to other African countries compared to places like, say, Glasgow or Paris, that doesn't automatically mean it's more accessible. And there are still countries that will have very little representation at this COP and a lot of experts and activists in African countries who would have liked to be attending and be participating but aren't either because they haven't been able to get the necessary credentials because there's quite a limited number of those that are given out um, or simply because it's too expensive. So coming at it from our point of view what should Ireland be particularly engaged with at this year's meeting? My understanding of what Ireland's involvement is going to be is that at least on paper the Irish delegation is going to be focused on those issues like loss and damage like fossil fuels, but also on the link between climate and security. So that's things like conflict, but also you can wrap into that energy security and and food security. And also I understand that the delegation is going to be looking as well at 
the idea of how can we make COPs more transparent and more inclusive, the need to support active participation of women and young people in the negotiations. So I think those plans are focused in the right direction, but it will be about trying to bring those to fruition and translating them from paper to reality. Um, Minister Eamon Ryan is going to be in there in the second week, and I believe a priority for him is going to be um, on that acceleration away from fossil fuels and calling for climate finance for vulnerable countries. But it will be about getting to the table and making sure those aren't just left as these kind of nice notions, but actually translating those into measures that countries will sign up to. Yeah, because that's kind of what happened with COP26. There was loads of initial hope and talk of action. But by the end in the deal, it was massively watered down. Are you in any way optimistic that the outcome after this year's COP will be any different? It's an interesting one, because I think when we look at this year's COP, it doesn't have the same kind of fanfare around it that last year's had. And that might play out for the better or for the worse. So there's maybe some kind of hope that in a COP with maybe slightly less notions of leaders coming to make these grandiose speeches that might not have something solid behind them, that maybe actually it's a time for putting the head down and getting the work done. But then also when you look at the circumstances we have around the world this year, I'm thinking particularly in terms of the war in Ukraine, things like the energy crisis in Europe, which are difficult social issues, but even just from an economic perspective, they're putting a lot of pressure on countries. And when we talk about what can we get out of these costs, a lot of it does come down to money. It's about how much money countries will commit to doing certain things. And if countries are looking at home and thinking about how stretched their finances are, there are concerns that their pockets might not, that they might not reach as deep into their pockets this year on those issues like, you know, for instance, sending support to developing countries. So it is really difficult to know how this one is going to play out. I may be clutching at straws here looking for the good in all of this, but is there any previous agreement or commitment that we can look back at and say, yes, that was effective? I think the best example of a climate-related deal that was successful was the Montreal Protocol. And for that, you have to go back all the way to 1987, which maybe isn't the best indicator if we if we, we might like to be able to look at a success that came more recently than that. That was a, an interesting example of a deal that, that did do what it was aiming to. So it was a protocol that was targeting gases that damage the ozone layer, which is what blocks UV rays from the sun coming straight down to Earth. And that was one of the only UN treaties to be ratified by every single UN member. Um, And it's largely seen to have been quite successful at letting the ozone layer recover and and stopping the further damage that we would have had if those really dangerous UV waves had had come down and brought kind of devastating impacts for human health. It's seen as having done, done its job. And I think that's what we need to see coming out of these COPs is that they have a very clear aim and a very clear path to achieve it. I hinge all my climate optimism on the fact that when I was in primary school, we learned about the ozone layer and then it was fixed. (laughs) Um, Just to change uh, direction a little bit, because I did talk about Rishi Sunak, the UK Prime Minister, in my introduction uh, to this episode. Tell us a little bit about the will he, won't he story. And he is actually going now, right? Yes. So he is for the moment, at least. Who knows what's going to happen tomorrow or the next day? But right now, that's the plan. And I think 
Firstly, it's important to know on this that the UK actually holds the presidency of the COP for COP26. So that's why it was in Glasgow each year there's a country who leads the action on the COP. And last year it was the United Kingdom, which started last year in Glasgow and is continuing right up until Egypt officially takes over this month. So if we, we rewind a few weeks in British politics to when Liz Truss was prime minister, it came out that she had told the new King Charles not to go to COP. And that firstly caused a bit of a stir because he was at last year's COP in Glasgow and, and climate has always been a bit of a kind of a thing for him that he has kind of latched on as, as one of, I suppose, the kind of issues that he's been public about um, supporting. And so it was something of a blow that he wouldn't be making the trip this time. But Liz Truss did say she was going to go herself as the UK Prime Minister. But then, of course, she became no longer the UK Prime Minister. And that job then came to Rishi Sunak, who said he would not be going because there were more important issues to deal with at home. But then shortly you turned afterwards to say he will, in fact, go. Does that kind of just show us and tell us that it's important to turn up, but not actually that important to do anything, given he's already said it's well down his list of important items on his agenda? I think the people who want him to go, they don't want him to go to just talk the talk. They do genuinely want him to go to walk the walk. Whether he actually does that is another issue. And it is the case, definitely, that for some political leaders, it is more of a box-ticking exercise. And Greta Thunberg pointed out recently that, as she describes it, the cops are used by some as, as this opportunity for leaders and, and people in power to, to get attention kind of through greenwashing what they're actually doing. And that is a very genuine criticism of the way these cops work. But I think that being said, there is still a lot of really important work that happens there. And it's not it's not all about the heads of state. You also have the negotiators, the academics, the NGOs, the activists, lots of people who are there pushing for the necessary action. And I think we shouldn't discount the importance of that, even if there are those who take it less seriously. What direction is Sunak likely to take the UK when it comes to climate action? Rishi Sunak, he, he does not have the best record on climate issues. He's he's voted against a lot of measures that are related to emissions reductions. And interestingly, even if you look at his new cabinet, one of the people that has been dropped from it is Alok Sharma, who is an MP who has served as COP26 president. And he was a member of cabinet in that capacity as COP26 president. Um, but now he's been dropped. So he's still the COP26 president, but he's no longer a member of cabinet. And when you couple decisions like that with his voting record and with the the initial decision not to go to COP, it, it does spell this worrying attitude towards climate action in the UK under Rishi Sunak. And to look closer to home, Lauren, then, who is Ireland sending? We have a few people going. So there'll be a cohort of cabinet ministers that'll all be heading off to Egypt at various times throughout the two weeks. Michal Martin, Taoiseach, he'll be heading over first for the World Leaders Summit. So he'll be shaking hands with all the other heads of states and he'll be making a speech there on the Tuesday afternoon. Then as the weeks go on, you get into more of the nitty gritty of it. So later in the first week, we'll have Minister Simon Coveney and Minister Colm Brophy going from the Department of Foreign Affairs. And they'll be looking at kind of international climate issues, so things around energy security, food security, 
those those vulnerable countries um in places like the Horn of Africa that have been hit hard by by climate change. Um, then in the second week, we'll have Minister Eamon Ryan from the Department of the Environment, and he will be supporting the EU negotiations. He'll be kind of advocating for Ireland's climate priorities, things like what we were talking about, about around fossil fuels, about supporting vulnerable countries. Um, I believe he'll be joining some meetings of groups kind of looking to how we can further those kind of issues. Um, and he'll be there for the second week, which is when the negotiations really start to pick up steam. Um, and they'll be part, they'll be leading the kind of wider Irish delegation, which is kind of made up of mostly officials, but they also give some extra passes to people like activists or academics. And I believe the kind of total number of the delegation between those official and then what's known as the overflow passes, I believe it's somewhere around 80 to 100 people will be going as part of the Irish delegation. Turning to a European context then, you've mentioned the war. Will there be much discussion of the impact of that war in Ukraine on climate action? I think it will underscore a lot of the discussions. Ukraine will have a presence there. Countries can have a pavilion in the in the conference centre and Ukraine will have one of those. And it looks like it's going to be a really a lot of really interesting discussions happening within that pavilion, but also across the conference as a whole. It is going to be there front and centre in people's minds, the, the impact of the war for Eastern Europe, but also for the world as a whole um, in terms of what it represents of Russia's role or Russia's position in kind of global discussions and how issues like climate can be negotiated on when there's this, I suppose, kind of elephant in the room. Um, there's also the financial aspect of it, the countries that have been hit financially by the impacts of the war and the energy crisis. It does make it more difficult to commit climate finance. So that is going to be definitely a very significant factor that wasn't there last year. Yeah. And similarly, are you expecting much discussion or protest about oil and gas companies, huge profits that they're making as this war wages? Oil and gas companies are always a sore point of cop, particularly because those industries are somewhat represented at the conference. And I think this year with the the energy crisis, it's going to be an even sharper focus. But there are questions around the capacity of people to protest at this COP because we know that Egypt is typically not a, a country that is particularly friendly to protest. There is a designated space within the convention for protesting, for demonstrations, which I, it might seem like a bit of an oxymoron to have a protest that is, you know, within a designated area um, and, and organizers have to give, I think it's 36 hours notice if they wanted to hold a protest in that area. You can also have a march in the city if you give 48 hours notice. Um, so again, there, there, is, there is provision for activism and for protesting at this COP, but it won't be until things kick off and we see what kind of response there is on the ground to those protests that we'll know how much space they are genuinely being afforded. So how hopeful should people be that real progress could be made over the next couple of weeks? I think the reality of it is that looking just at this COP, there isn't going to be a dramatic outcome. That's unlikely. We know that because Paris and Glasgow, the way they were set up was to have these kind of significant pacts coming out of them. It will still be 
a, probably a more significant COP than maybe others in the past because of what we talked about with countries being asked to up their ambition continually. It still won't be as, as dramatic or as significant as last year. That being said, that's not a reason to give up hope on climate action more broadly. I think on the wider picture of climate change, we have to stay hopeful because if we give up hope, we're not just giving it up for ourselves, we're giving it up massively for future generations and for the people who are right now in vulnerable countries suffering the worst impacts. So I, we can't afford to give up hope. On that note then, how can people stay up to date with your reporting from Egypt? We'll have all the coverage on the journal.ie and we'll have it on our social media platforms, our Twitter and our Instagram. You can also sign up to our newsletter that we'll be sending out during the COP, um, which is called Temperature Check. And I'll also be tweeting updates and photos from the conference over on Twitter. I'm at LaurenAnna underscore one. Thanks very much, Lauren. And we definitely will be all giving you a follow and keeping an eye on your coverage. Best of luck in Sharm al-Sheikh. And thanks again for coming in to explain all of that to us today. Thank you for listening to The Explainer and a big thank you to Lauren for stopping by before heading to Sharm el-Sheikh. As we mentioned, you can follow all of her coverage on The Journal, as well as our social media platforms, her own Twitter, and you can sign up for a temperature check the newsletter. You'll find details of that on thejournal.ie. This episode of The Explainer was brought to you by producers Nikki Ryan and Aoife Barry. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting us so we can continue to make more just like this one. There's a couple of things you can do. Head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute to become a monthly subscriber or make a one-off donation. You can also leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. It's a great way to make sure other people will listen and love it too. Thank you and catch you next time. <laughs>